Thank you, choir. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 17 to 25. We'll cover briefly verses 26 to 31, but I'll only be reading up to verse 25. This is God's holy and inerrant word. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would now, by the work of your Spirit in our hearts, know something of the wisdom and power of God as it's found in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we learned last week, if you were here, but we looked at Paul in Acts 17. He had that opportunity to preach to the intellectually elite philosophers of his day, and he shared with them the, the gospel. Remember he said, what, we, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And even though they didn't have the categories to understand the resurrection and the gospel message, Paul didn't dumb down that message. We, we learned that. He didn't seek some common ground. He, he confronted their so-called wisdom with the wisdom of God. He confronted them with the wisdom of biblical truth, that God is their creator, we, that God is the sustainer of life, that God is actually involved in this world, and that he's not far from us. And remember, armed with the proof of the resurrection, uh, that God will be their judge. And that was a fact, because Christ has risen, and so they are to repent. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul told them that in Acts 17. You see, despite how wise these philosophers were and thought they were, despite how foolish they would have viewed the gospel uh, and how foolish Paul would be for proclaiming it, Paul knew better. And see, that kind of leads us into our passage this morning. See, when we look at our passage this morning here in 1 Corinthians, you could say that it provides a summary of Paul's experience and his encounter there on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Remember, the Greeks believed that philosophy was all important. They loved to come together and to argue their favorite philosophers and the philosophical ideas. Remember, Luke tells us that they used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Their whole culture was built around that. 
everything. We mentioned just two philosophical schools last week, the Epicureans and the Stoics, but there were plenty more. And all those different schools of philosophy were, were vying for acceptance. They wanted to be heard. Uh, the Greeks were in love with human wisdom. And that's where we get the word philosophy. It comes from two Greek words, phileo, which means love, and sophia, which means wisdom, the love of wisdom. They love to talk philosophy. And not only that, yes, they love to talk philosophy, and they loved how they talked about philosophy. That was just as important. They were concerned with not only what to say, but how to say it. The what to say was philosophy. These, these different philosophical schools were discussed. But for them, the how, how to say it was what is known as rhetoric. An elaborate ornamentation of language and style. They, they used clever speech and eloquent words. That's how you got heard in their day. It wasn't enough that you had something good to say. Uh, you wouldn't be listened to if, if you didn't say it the right way way, if you weren't clever in the way you presented it, if you weren't eloquent, uh, well, then you were kind of put aside. You weren't worth listening to. Even if, if, even if somebody sensed a, a kernel of truth in what you were saying, if you didn't have the eloquence, you were pushed aside. And so the power of your message in that day is how well you could communicate it. That's how the ancient Greeks thought. That's how the philosophers thought. And unfortunately, when we come to Corinth, that's what happened in the church there. Even after their conversion, the Corinthians were still enamored with this, with this popular rhetoric. They, they thought the gospel was wisdom, as wisdom. That's how they thought about it. And they believed then, because the gospel was wisdom, it should be presented with the appropriate eloquence, with this clever speech. And because they were thinking that way, it was causing division in the church. You see it in verse 12, I follow Paul, and, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. And then there's the real spiritual ones, right? They follow Jesus. And since worldly wisdom relies upon the cleverness of speech, and since they were viewing the gospel under that category of worldly wisdom then what happened is the people began focusing on the speaker and his abilities. And so some like Paul, and some like the Paulus, and some like Cephas. But see, Paul had a problem with this. He, he disagreed with it. He, he refused to preach philosophy, and he refused to use clever speech. Verse 17 for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, in place of human philosophy and human rhetoric, Paul put the cross. Uh, and he says that the cross is both the wisdom and the power of God. See, the world's wisdom the world's wisdom relies upon the power of clever speech, and, and then so the emphasis is on the speaker, but God's wisdom relies upon the power of the cross. And so where's the emphasis? It's on Jesus Christ. And so these are just two diametrically opposed systems of thought. They can't be mixed. They can't be mingled. And so what we find in our passage, John MacArthur points this out, is that Paul 
is confronting these philosophically oriented Christians in the church, and he's saying to them, he's basically saying, look, you've become Christians. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. This philosophy is not going to help you. It didn't help you before, and it's surely not going to help you now. So give it up. You're being misled. Don't be misled. It has nothing to offer you but confusion, and it's causing division. And see, Paul's warning here speaks to our current situation perfectly. Why? Because just like in Paul's time, it is now, the church all too often becomes fatuated, infatuated that is, with human ideas and insights. And they want to add these ideas and these unique, what seems to be wise insights to Scripture. And then ultimately what happens are these things supplant Scripture and the authority of God's Word and and the philosophical speculations become what's most important. This is what's happened in the liberal church. Women and women who think they're smarter than God, who can't believe in miracles, who, who, who can't believe that God created the world, let alone in six days. Uh, men and women in the church, even, uh, who deny that God put his son on the cross or that a resurrection can actually happen. And so they can't believe these things, and so with earthly wisdom, they, they strip the Scripture of its biblical faithfulness. We, and those of us here who hold to the inerrant Word of God, that it's the authoritative Word of God, that it's inspired by God, who believe in Scripture, and we must submit ourselves to Scripture, who believe that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, that there's only one gospel, that God sent His Son to die on the cross. Well, we're seen as weak-minded. We're seen and, uh, as foolish, People that hold these views are mocked. Just go to any university and say, I I believe in six-day creationism. And they don't even engage you. They just laugh. They they just can't believe. They scoff at it. You're labeled a fool because they are considered so wise and powerful. And that's not surprising that that happens today. It's always been this way. It's what Paul encountered, in fact, here. And he wasn't surprised by it. And in verses 18 to 25, Paul is going to contrast between two opposite reactions to our foolish gospel. There are those who say the gospel is foolish and weak, and there are those who say it's the wisdom and power of God. And he's going to state in no uncertain terms that true wisdom and true power is found through what the world considers foolish and weak. That's the gospel, the preaching of the cross. Now basically, verses 18 to 25 elaborate on what Paul's already said in verse 17. Verse 17, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the cross without worldly wisdom and the power of rhetoric is both wise and powerful. And what he's going to do here, he's going to make it in two sections, 18 to 21, and then we're going to look at verses 22 to 25. And both of those sections begin with the cross. Look at verses 18 to 21. What do we read in verse 18? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And Paul here immediately sets the contrast. There are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved. 
And the, the perishing, what do they believe? They believe the cross is folly. There's nothing more foolish to the worldly wise than to think that God, think about the gospel for a second, God takes on human form and that by dying, he could provide man's forgiveness of sin and entrance into heaven. That's what we believe. And it's just silly to them. Their natural minds cannot comprehend it. They cannot conceive that a Jewish carpenter uh, uh, died on a piece of wood in some out-of-the-world place and to determine the eternal destiny of every single person who ever walked the earth. Now, when you step back and think of that from a worldly perspective, it does sound foolish. It sounds silly. And not only that, it's, it's a humbling message. It's a humbling message. And, and, and it would humble you, and so it, it seems stupid. Now, we don't like that term, stupid. I understand. But the word foolish here is where we get the word moron. The worldly wise say you would have to be a moron to believe this gospel. That's what Paul's getting at. And Paul's response is, well, in contrast, it's the power of God. And he goes on to prove this by quoting the Old Testament. Now he's speaking to the church here. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God has frustrated man's wisdom. He has made foolish man's wisdom. You see, the wisdom of man has nothing to offer those who are seeking salvation. Nothing to offer those of us that are asking the big questions in life. You know, the really important questions, and by the way, especially after COVID, a lot of people are asking these questions. It, it just makes you reflect. I've gotten calls from people I knew in the past. All of a sudden, they're asking, what's going on? They're, they're kind of, they started thinking the world was coming to an end. They're not believers. And, and so you start asking big questions like, where did I come from? And why are we here? And, and where are we going when we die? The world, the only answer they have is, well, there was nothing, and then poof, there was something, and then all of a sudden, you went from whatever you were to a person. And so they can answer no, they have no reason to say there's any purpose or meaning in life. They just can't answer the questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And when it comes to answering these questions, as I said, human philosophy is silent. And so Paul asks, look at verse 20. He asks those questions, says, all right, where's the wise person? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? They have no adequate response. And Paul goes on to explain why that's the case. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What he's saying here is basically this. Left to themselves, worldly wisdom can never find God. Remember last week we talked about the Cyclops and, and they were blind and, and they were kind of groping through, the, through trying to find God and they couldn't find them. Why? Because they were blind. God was there, but they couldn't find them. They were unable to find God. And it is where their wisdom got them. Nowhere. It, it, they tried, and so they come up with all these idols, and they still couldn't figure it out, so they had this unknown God. And so that's where worldly wisdom will lead you. 
It may get you to the point where you say, well, there had to be something other than a Big Bang. There's something intelligent out there. But we see how foolish people are today. They don't even acknowledge that. And and so they can't find God. They cannot reach God themselves. And so follow the train of thought here by the Apostle Paul. In order to follow that thought, one writer kind of asks three questions. And so here are these people groping about, and they can't find God. And so in order to have that relationship, who takes the initiative? And Paul answers, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, could not know him, God was pleased to take action on our behalf. So who took the initiative? God did. Second, what was the result then of God's initiative? God was pleased, what's it say, to save those who believe. And so the result is salvation. And how was this initiative taken? So God took the initiative The result of that initiative is salvation. How was this initiative taken? Through the gospel. For since the world failed to reach God through its own wisdom, God was pleased to save us through the foolishness of what was preached. And so do you see worldly wisdom in God's wisdom? How how, the contrast there? Worldly wisdom leads you nowhere. God's wisdom leads you to salvation. But Paul's not even done yet. He continues to build on this thesis that the wisdom is found through the folly of the cross and power is found through the weakness of the cross. And in order to do this, what Paul does is here divide the world of people, the human race, into three groups. You have the worldly Jews, you have the worldly Greeks, and you have the called Christians. And what he does is he says there's those three groups, and and let me share with you the difference between them. You have the worldly Jews. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs. Remember, they were expecting a a, a political Messiah to come, uh, to conquer the Romans. And so in order for for the Messiah to prove that he was the true Messiah, he had to do signs. And, and so they, they demand signs. Second, the worldly Greeks, look again at verse 22, they seek wisdom. Now, we already looked at this. That was last week. I, just, I started the sermon with this. The Greeks loved wisdom. They loved discussing it. They didn't want to have any consequences from their discussion, but they loved it. And, and, but it had to be reasonable. And so their worldly wisdom kind of gave them this foundation. You couldn't go beyond it. It had to be comprehensible for their human minds. For example, people will say, I'll believe Christianity enough, but once you start having these miracles, well, they can't happen. And so you have what, you know, the Jefferson Bible. And he tears out all the miracles. Well, you can have it, but see, my wisdom only allows so much. And so you have these Greeks, they seek wisdom. What's the third group? called Christians, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. And so notice the contrast. Jews demand, Greeks seek. Uh, Christians don't do either of those things. They preach. They preach, they proclaim Christ crucified. And to all that heard this message in the first century, it was just a contradiction in terms. You've got to understand What did Messiah mean to these people? It meant power. It meant power, splendor, triumph, the triumph of a king over the Romans, for example. And what did crucifixion mean to them? You know, we kind of wear 
a crucifix on our, our, you know, around our necks with a chain, it'd be like wearing an you know, a, a electric chair around your neck. If, people would, if, if somebody starts doing that, you're going to be like, that person's weird. Well, the, the cross was despised in Roman culture. A, a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. They, they hated that. And so it says that any wonder, as verse 23 states, it was a stumbling block to the Jews who were expecting a military leader, and it was a folly to the Gentiles who despised crucifixion. Again, a Roman citizen was never crucified. And so it was inconceivable in their mind that God's son would die on a cross. And so human wisdom failed them. They could not comprehend it. Their wisdom could not get beyond it. And so the message of the gospel was foolish and weak. But then there's the third category, the called Christian. Verse 24, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, out of the worldly Jews and out of the worldly Greeks, there are those that God initiates and calls, brings them out of their darkness. We read, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, in spite of what the cross may seem to be, it, it, it was not weakness, but God's power. It was not foolishness, it was God's wisdom. For the first 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so there you have it. That, that's it. And what was true in Paul's day is still true in ours. The cross is still weakness to those who long to worship the idol of worldly power. Those who are confident in their own power to save themselves. Who, who imagine they can accumulate merit and put God in their debt. I had a friend, after I got saved, I had a friend who told me when I kind of confronted him with the gospel, he goes, look, someday God will need me. And so he'll forgive everything else and I'll just do what he needs and, and then I'll be forgiven. He thought he had the power within himself. But what does the message of the cross say? The message of the cross says it's impossible for you to save yourself. And so the worldly wise despise it because it's humbling. And it's also still foolishness to those who worship the idol worldly wisdom. Let me give you an example. I came across this in a commentary by John Stott. He tells of Sir Alfred Ayer. He was an Oxford University professor who died in 1989. Well, Professor Ayers was, uh, he hated Christianity. And he wrote this article that, uh, uh, that was scathing. And he was especially scornful of the cross. This is what he wrote. That of all the historic religions, there is a strong case for regarding Christianity as the worst. Why? And he goes on and says, because it rested on the allied doctrines of original sin. Original sin is basically we're born in sin and can't save ourselves. That we're uh, original sin. And what he labels vicarious atonement. The fact that Christ died and had to die on our behalf for us to be saved. He said both of those doctrines, which are so central to our faith, both of those doctrines are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. He was a philosopher, worldly wise, and we could go on to quote many, many university professors in our day who say the same. As I said earlier, just stand up in a university class, uh, you know, if you're going off to college or regular university, any one of them, just say, hey, by the way, I believe that God created the world in six days. 
And um, I believe in a younger earth. Not, it's not 65 million years old. And oh, by the way, God became man and died on a cross and see what they say. And we could quote them. And, and worse than that, unfortunately, we, we can quote Christian professors nowadays. And, and, and even some pastors. You know, when Christy was younger, her family went to a church in our neighborhood and it, you know, they would go week in and week out, and eventually they had to leave the church because the pastor decided Jesus didn't raise from the grave. Um, and so there was no resurrection. So in Easter, you know, they talk about Easter bunnies or, or Jesus rising in your heart to make you feel good, but they denied the resurrection. They, they're, they're smarter than God. They're smarter than his word. They thought the cross was foolish. They thought it was weak. But see, they could think all they want. Paul tells us it's the wisdom and the power of God. And what I want to do is just give you three examples of its power and wisdom. Three examples, applications, if you'd like. First, it's the wisdom and power of God to overcome sin. If that's important to you, Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He took on our sin. For it is written, cursed is everyone and hangs on a tree. That's the gospel. There is nowhere else we can turn for forgiveness. It's the cross. There's no other way. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins, we're told in Romans, and raised for our justification. A person can only be forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ's death and resurrection alone. And if you do believe that gospel, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then here's what the message of the cross says. It's what we say when we take communion. You are forgiven. You're forgiven of your past sins, you're forgiven of your present sins, and you're forgiven of your future sins. And it's only, only through the cross that we receive forgiveness. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God to overcome sin. Second, the cross is the wisdom and power of God to overcome Satan. Paul says in Colossians, Christ disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and authorities are, are, are spiritual demons. Satan. Revelation 12, 11, we are told the devil is overcome. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And Nathan read earlier that, that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And, and you can just get the, the images there, right? I don't have to explain it much. You imagine this lion just rushing at you, ready to pounce. And Paul says, oh, just lift up the cross. And he's like a kitten. There's nothing he can do. We overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. See, the cross of Christ is the wisdom and power of God to overcome Satan and his works. Third, the cross is also the wisdom and power of God to overcome suffering in this sinful world. You know, when you think about it, on these university campuses I was talking about, I just run into any other believer, and I remember before I was saved thinking this, that one of the biggest objections to Christianity is we believe what? That God is completely in control, that he's all-powerful, and that he's loving, and that he's good. And the world says they can't all be true. 
if he's loving and good, he must not be all-powerful or he would do something about the suffering and evil in the world. And if, if he is all-powerful and could do something about it and doesn't, he can't be loving and good. And so how can you say God is good and loving if he allows so much suffering? I hear it. I've heard it before. Like I said, I've said it. Um, and there's many ways to answer that objection. I mean, one would just simply be, well, if you don't have a God, what's right and wrong? Who determines that? Society? We see how that went uh, uh, for the Jews in Germany when society determined what was right and wrong. And so there's no uh, absolute truth. That's one way. But another way, probably a a more gentle way, is, is to confront them with the reality of what the cross is. Now, there's a, a play, and it's a playlet, kind of a poem. It's entitled The Long Silence. I don't know if you've heard of it. And, and it kind of makes sense of the cross uh, and, and suffering um, in light of that. This is what the author writes. Let me, let me walk through this. You've got to imagine the scene here. That's what's happening. At the end of time, there's billions of people, and they're scattered on a great plain, and they're before God's throne. And most of the people there before God's throne kind of are shrinking back with the, the brilliant light and, and that's before them. But here, even in before God's throne, in the group, there's, in the front, there was these people that were debating. They were talking heatedly. Not in shame, but with belligerence. And, and you hear one person scream out, can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a perk young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly roper lynched for no crime but being black. And then far across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. And then they went on to say how lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. And so each of these groups, they bring forth their leader before the throne of God and chosen because they were the ones that suffered the most, a, 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 a Jew, an African-American, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, and many others. And in the center of the plain there, they consulted with each other. They began to talk, and at last they were ready to stand before the judge, God, and make their case. And it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to life on earth as a man. He said, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last... Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. And let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. 
And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. And so maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I, 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 you know, with your fist clenched to God and you're saying, I, I, I don't understand how he can allow this. He's not fair. He doesn't understand and I'm in overwhelming pain and, and it doesn't seem like he cares at all. Have you ever felt that way? I know people have. Even believers can. Why is there so much suffering? And in the midst of all that, we have the cross. We're told in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, the cross, the cross screams from the throne of God, I understand your pain. I, I, I understand your suffering, and you can get through it, trust me, because I'm there with you. See, it's at the cross that the reality of suffering and the reasonableness of our faith makes sense. He's not a faraway God. He's not separated from us. It's at the cross that we find the power to persevere through suffering. And I could go on and on and on. The point is simple. The cross is the wisdom and the power of God. And so let me close with a simple question. Are you, are we willing to stand with the Apostle Paul and unequivocally say that the cross is the wisdom and power of God? And before you answer yes, because I'm sure most of us would here, remember, to answer yes, you must be willing to shun worldly power and wisdom to accomplish the work of the gospel. You must be willing to say with the Apostle Paul that there's no one who seeks God in their own strength. They will never find him apart from God initiating, and therefore they will never find God relying on their own wisdom. You must be willing to reject worldly tactics in order to win people to Christ like so many other churches use in our day. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? But we have renounced disgraceful, unhanded ways, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul, of all people, had the ability to use worldly wisdom. Paul, of all people, had the ability to use eloquent speech. But he says he put them aside. He, he put them aside and he wouldn't give them the light of day. All he would do is simply present the historic object, objective truth of the gospel. No human speculation. There was no fanfare. I mean, some didn't even like him. They were bored by him. He just preached the word. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to have our church do that? Refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but simply by the open statement of the truth, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Not many are willing to do that in our day. Not many. 
But if we are, as a church, you've got to realize that we may not have all the flash, as some have, and, but God will receive all the glory. See, that's the wisdom of the gospel. True, many may mock for being weak. Even other Christians at times they may call us fools for just simply proclaiming the gospel. But Paul says in the final verses, let me read them, verses 26 to 31. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being must boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see the wisdom of God in all this? He receives all the glory for our salvation. In his son, he takes the initiative, and he makes us righteous, and he sanctifies us, and he redeems us. And then he takes us, many of us weak, as we just read, many of us acting foolish often, and he gives us wisdom. He gives us the gospel. And he gives it to us to proclaim to the wise and, and to the strong in this world. Why? So that they will be humbled. That they will be shamed into recognizing their need. Why? Because no man is the boast in the presence of God when it comes to their salvation. And see, God will receive all the glory, verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so there it is, just which will it be? Will the cross... Or does the cross cause you to stumble like the unbelieving Jew? Uh, do you view it as folly, as the worldly Gentile? Or will you embrace it like a Christian, as the wisdom and the power of God? Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your spirit that we would see the cross for what it truly is, the wisdom and power of God. Help us to glorify you in all that we do, particularly as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without fanfare, presenting the truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would do the work by your spirit to bring those still in darkness to light.